Well, good morning to you. If you are new, uh, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors running around here. And it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. I'd like to welcome Cornerstone Kids and Pebbles to join us today. Um, we do this on the fifth Sunday of the month. We invite Cornerstone Kids and Pebbles into the service with us. And we do this because uh, it's important to us that we are modeling for our children what we do on Sunday mornings and sitting under God's Word and hearing Him speak to us through His Word. And so um, that means, because the kids are with us, it's going to be a little bit more distracting than normal. There's going to be more shuffling around, as it were. Um, but I trust that uh, God will enable you to pay attention appropriately. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I would like to say thank you before we read here uh, to my two brothers for filling in for me for the last couple of weeks. Pastor Steve and Pastor Brent filled in, um, and I'm greatly appreciative of them and their ministry to us all. Um, being uh, one of your pastors and being able to teach the Bible every week is one of the great privileges and joys of my life. I love doing it. Thank you for allowing me to do it. And when I miss, man, do I miss. And so I'm glad to be back uh, here with you. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 14. We'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then uh, we'll work our way through this passage a verse at a time. should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the 15th year... Of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food 
is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more taxes than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Father, we send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, enabling us to understand what it is that we read. Give us ears to hear, that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. For Jesus' sake we ask, amen. About 180 years ago, a Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright was once given an opportunity to preach to the then sitting president, Mr. Andrew Jackson. Before the service, Mr. Cartwright was warned not to say anything in his sermon that would be considered out of line. When the time came to preach, he opened his sermon with these words. I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. End quote. May the Lord give boldness like that again to the Methodist brothers. Well, I've made it no secret my appreciation to God for the Puritans of English and American history. And I accept the fact that I am in the minority in this. The Puritan style of preaching does not usually suit modern ears. And Peter Cartwright was no Puritan, to be sure, but he was raised in that tradition. The Puritans preached against sin. But we should not be left with the impression that Puritan preaching was all hell and fire. Actually, what is most indicative of Puritan preaching is a heavy emphasis on the glory of God's mercy and His grace towards sinners. With few exceptions, Puritan sermons are filled with hope provided to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the mere mention of sin and repentance and God's wrath seems to have fallen out of favor in our day. And this morning, I will endeavor to show from the text of Scripture, that calling sinners to repent of their sin isn't a Puritan distinctive, but a biblical one. John the baptizer exploded onto salvation historical scene as a preacher of repentance. And his ministry, as the last of the Old Testament prophets, was to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the ministry God gave to him to level the playing field, 
to make ready the road upon which Messiah would ride was to be done by preaching. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I will endeavor this morning to show that we need such preaching in our day, perhaps more in our day than any other day. For we live in the post-enlightenment age, where rugged individualism has left us moderns with a, a fascinating inability to see ourselves as we truly are. To our own detriment and harm, we have appointed ourselves as our own counselors, as our own physicians, and thereby we suffer a profound misdiagnosis of our problems and a misplaced confidence in the treatment. More than anything else, we need saved from ourselves. In the previous century, Martin Lloyd-Jones picked up on this. And he said, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of that sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves, end quote. If the roadway for the Savior is to be laid in our hearts, then the mountains of our pride and the valleys of our folly must be leveled, and they will be. And the way they will be is through gospel-centered preaching, repentance, preaching, and so here's the big idea this morning. Since the word of God has come to you, repent, dear sinner, and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Since the word of God has come to you, repent, dear sinner, and bear fruits in keeping with that repentance. Today we will consider the preaching ministry of John the Baptist. We'll see first that John is a prophet in verses 1 to 3. Second, we will see that John is a prepper in verses 4 to 6. And then finally, we'll see that John was a preacher in verses 7 to 14. That's how it's laid up this morning, so let's get to work. Verses 1 to 3 again, John was a prophet. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 3 again. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturian and Traconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Gospel of Luke was written by a man named Luke, who the Bible tells us was a physician, but also an historian. And you can see the evidence of his historical eye in verse 1 and 2. The ministry of John the Baptist is steeped in easily identifiable and verifiable history. 
We've touched on this already in this series, but the Bible is a historical book. The events herein actually happened as they appear in the text. This is not a book of fables and fairy tales and allegories. John really existed. He really said what he said. Jesus of Nazareth really existed and said what he really said and did what the Bible says he did. Luke goes to length in these verses to show us that the word of God came to John during the reign of evil men. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, Annas and Caiaphas, all of these names feature later in the New Testament, and all of these men have reputations of being wicked men who misuse their power. And Luke's inclusion of these names here should remind us that even in the worst of times, when the worst of men rule the world of men, God is still in control. God is still orchestrating and working his glorious plan of redemption, regardless of who's in charge. It is as the Apostle Paul wrote, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This means that nations and rulers and kings of this world may wrestle and they may rage, but they will never supplant even the least part of God's perfect plan. And so church, you can trust your God in these times, just as your forefathers trusted him in their times. They saw the Lord accomplish his will in their day. And I can promise you, you will see the Lord accomplish his will in your day. And so we read, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, those of you who've been with us in the series, you know we've met John before in this gospel. We left him back in chapter one, where there we read that the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And this is his public appearance to Israel. The gospel writer Matthew fills us in on some of the details of John's ministry. Matthew tells us that John wore a camel, camel skin vest and a leather belt around his waist, and he lived on bugs and beehives. Where other men may see a dead camel, John sees a new outfit. Where we might be looking for a fly swatter, John is looking for lunch. This is an unusual man. I imagine him with these crazy, dirty hair and these wild, piercing eyes. He's loud and direct and unpredictable. He's a bit of a spectacle. And people came from all over to see him. And they would hear his preaching. And they would fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sin. And they would repent and be baptized. When Luke says the word of God came to him, he's using language that's indicative of the Old Testament prophets. And this is because John is a prophet. Later in Luke chapter 7, the Lord Jesus himself says that he is more than a prophet. That he's the greatest man born to a woman. And in verse 3 we read, He went into all the region around the Jordan 
proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In his traveling ministry, John stuck near the Jordan River because he was a baptizer and you needed a river. Much to the chagrin of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, John knew you needed more than a cup of water to baptize someone. And so he used the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River was not just any river in Israel. It was the river over which God's people crossed into the promised land. The Jordan carried great spiritual significance to the Jewish people. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins had the Jordan River significant to that ministry. The Jordan River represented cleansing, transition, the ending of one era, the beginning of a new era, which all accords very well with John's ministry. For he was preparing for the coming of the Messiah. His ministry marked a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, which would be inaugurated by the Christ. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. What does Luke mean that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? The word baptism means to dip fully, immerse, to plunge. To repent means to change one's mind, to alter one's understanding. To repent means that you recognize that you are wrong and going in the wrong direction. And then you turn away, you turn toward the Lord, trusting that He knows better. His way is best. John's baptism is one of moral and spiritual transformation, a baptism of repentance. <clears throat> In the way that the water from the Jordan River washed dirt from the baptizee's body, the waters of baptism symbolize the, mir the miracle and merciful work of God to cleanse a sinner from their sin. To go under the water is to go under as one person and to come up as a new person with new resolve, a new purpose in life, a public declaration of your plan to follow God with your life. And so I must say, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you haven't been baptized, friend, do it now. Do it quickly. It is not an option to you. It is a command from your God. Can I encourage you, after the service today, before you leave, to find one of the pastors of this church and to ask them to meet with you and to talk with you about baptism and get you ready to make your faith public in the ordinance of baptism. This is John's ministry, to baptize sinners in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, to prepare the way. Which means John is a prepper. We read this in verses 4 to 6. Let's have a look there again. As it is written in the books, of the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. 
and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John was a prepper. Not the kind of prepper that stashes away food and water and cans of ammunition. A different kind of prepper. John was sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry of teaching and preaching was the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy that came to the man called Isaiah, who foretold that before Messiah would come, a man would come with a voice to cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John was that voice. The language here is of ancient Near Eastern metaphor of clearing the way for the coming of the king. The leveling of geographical objects like mountains and valleys by the powerful preaching of God's word is a way of portraying how the Lord removes obstructions to the coming of Christ. John's ministry removed obstructions to the coming of Christ. And the ministry of John did little to remove political, sociological barriers. Because Herod and Pilate remained in power throughout John's ministry. In fact, it is those powers that ended John's ministry with a beheading. But this is because politics and politicians are no obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What must be leveled by God's preached word is the mountain of pride in the heart of man. For it is not politicians, but the pride of man which refuses to acknowledge God's sovereignty. It is the valley of wickedness in the heart of every man which must be filled if they are to turn to the Lord in obedience to the faith. It is the crooked affections within each of us who delight more in dog breeds than in the doctrines of grace. Who because of wicked, crooked affections prefer the fleeting pleasures of sin to the lasting joy of Christ. Those crooked affections which cause us to think more about our next meal than our dear Savior. It is those crooked affections which must be made straight. For the ethical lines of this world have been drawn by men who are blind. And the preaching of God's word is to lay a righteous ruler against them and show that they are crooked. This is why the faithful preaching of God's inerrant word must be prioritized in our day. Cornerstone Piqua and Piqua Baptist Church. If the lampstand of this assembly is to remain, if we are to be a force for God's glory and good to the city, we must never suffer the diminishment of the preaching of God's word against sin and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot allow ourselves to be satisfied by self-help sermons which are so common in our day, which more resemble a TED talk than a motivational speech or sermon. Gospel-centered preaching has the power to change lives. 
For the gospel-centered preaching of a church is the power plant of the church, which sends power along electrical lines into every ministry of that church. From Sunday school to kids' classes to missions to outreach, God's Word is central. It must be read. It must be sung. It must be prayed. It must be preached. Each one of us must hear our master's voice saying to us, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary to sit at my feet and hear my word. And so we preach Christ and him crucified. Felt need programs are fine such as they are, and they may draw a crowd, but a church they will not build. Jesus told us what makes a church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. The rock of God-given apostolic confessions of Jesus as the Christ. This is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. And so Sunday after Sunday, we preach Christ. And through a steady diet of gospel-centered preaching, Christ builds this church, forming and molding his people into his spotless bride. And to this we must give ourselves. For when we do, when Christ is faithfully preached, the mountains of pride and the valleys of wickedness and the crooked affections of the heart are drawn to Christ in fulfillment of verse 6, where all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, interestingly, when Luke is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, he makes a change in the language. You may have noticed it when I opened the service in Isaiah 40. Isaiah's prophecy says that all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord, which Luke changes to all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. But that's not really a change, is it? The glory of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord are the same. For the glory of the Lord is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Isn't that why you're here today, dear Christian? to see the Savior of the world. If you have come to church today weary from a hard work battling the world and the flesh and the devil, look to Christ. See the salvation of God. If you have come to this place this morning suffering, Look, look to the salvation of God. Look to Jesus Christ. 
whether you are weary or wayward, lazy or lost, look to Christ and see the salvation of God. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you came to church today. Everyone in this room was once where you are. Repent, dear sinner. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. There is no wickedness too wicked that God cannot forgive by His abundant mercy. In His love for sinners like you, God put forth His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for their sin in their, in, in their place. His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead three days later, gives life to those who were lost. Puritan Thomas Watson said, Mercy swims to us through Christ's blood. Sinner, turn to Jesus Christ today. For when you do, you will find Him with open arms, more willing to receive you than you were to come. And you don't have to clean up your life to come. Just come. Whatever state you find yourself in, lay yourself at His feet, where you will find abundant mercy. Ask anyone here about that. After the service today, We'll have some folks standing up here up front. They would love to meet you. They would love to talk with you, pray with you, and help you take the next steps in following Jesus. John was a prophet. John was a prepper. And now we see John is a preacher. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We of Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise it from these stones, children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, well, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized by him, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. John opens his sermon. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? I mean, I usually open sermons with an illustration or a joke or something. John's like, thank you all for coming. You're a brood of vipers and going to hell. It gets to the point. It's rather effective. But it's a directness that might even cause Paul Washer to blush. But like the Puritans after him, John was not all hell and fire. His preaching was filled with gospel hope. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping 
with repentance. Remember, repentance is change. It is a change of heart, a change of mind. It is turning from one thing and turning to another. There is simply no repentance without change. The spark that lit the Reformation in 1517 was Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And the first thesis of those 95 Theses went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther's right about that. The entire life of believers. You see, repentance isn't only something unbelievers must do. Dear Christian, your whole life is to be one of repentance. As one author put it, the Christian life is repenting your way forward. We must give praise to God for the gift of Pastor Brent's preaching last week, which sets things up quite nicely for the passage before us today. Because I'm afraid some of us think that the gospel, the life and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, is the jump start that gets the engine of the Christian life running. It is that, but the gospel is much more. The gospel is the fuel and the oil that keeps the engine running. The gospel is the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian life. This is why the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian church of the gospel he preached to them, which they received, which they stand upon, and by which they are being saved. Christian, you never graduate from your need of the gospel. Now we celebrate, and rightly so, the biblical doctrine that God saves by grace alone through faith alone. And as often has been said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith brings about joyful, faithful obedience. Change. We bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It is an ongoing thing, fruit-bearing. Simply put, the repentant life is the one where Christ-likeness is present in an ever-increasing measure. Good works is not the foundation of your faith, but the evidence of it. In John's day, folks were looking to their ethnic and spiritual lineage for confidence that they were right with God. We have Abraham as our father, they would say. And John says, put no confidence in the flesh. Being related to Abraham by birth saves no one. 
For God is able to make children from Abraham out of rocks. He says, put no confidence in Abraham's genetics. It is the faith in Abraham's God which saves. And this faith, true faith, will produce a changed life. Every tree, every person, every life that does not produce the fruit of Christ-likeness is a dead tree and will be cut down. And even now, John warns, the axe has been laid to the root of the tree. Those Israelites in his day who were trusting in themselves, trusting in their lineage, not producing the fruits of a right relationship in trusting God, they will be cut down. Jesus said the very same thing in John 15, didn't he? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God the Father takes away. Being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, means constant change, constant growth in your life. As you are reading God's Word, hearing God's Word, singing God's Word, praying God's Word, you are being formed and shaped, changed into the image of Christ. Your affections are being realigned. Bad code in your brain is being rewritten by God's truth. And this takes place every day of your life. Part of your daily walk, dear Christian to borrow a phrase from the Puritans, is the mortification of your flesh. The killing of sin by starving it out. I can recommend no greater resource on this subject than the classic work from the 17th century by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. That little book is a gold mine of wealth in the war against the flesh. And I'll warn you, Owen is not an easy read, but he is well worth the work. Notice, in this kind of preaching, John's audience recognizes they needed to change. They needed spiritual reformation. Having been convicted of their sin and received the baptism of repentance, now they ask, what must we do? How does a repentant sinner live? And John points to the second table of the law. Verse 11, he writes, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. He tells the tax collectors to not take more than they were supposed to. He tells the soldiers not to extort money and to be content with their wages. Do you see what John is doing here? John is teaching the very same thing that his master will teach not many months from this point. What is the first and greatest commandment? Pastor Matt mentioned it earlier. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Once a person's heart has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, her love for her God will spill over her life as love toward others. She'll be, as Paul put it, 
zealous for good works. Have you ever wondered when Jesus answers the question, what is the first and greatest commandment? Singular. He answers with two. That's classic Jesus. What's the one and most important commandment? It is this, love God and love neighbor. Well, that's two, but not to Jesus. Because for Jesus, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor are inextricably connected. This is why the Apostle John would later say, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? John's saying, if you don't have love for your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, you can't say that you have love for God. The fruit in keeping with repentance will manifest itself as love and concern for the well-being of others. What shall we do is a question all of us are to answer today. And we are to seek God's word for the answer. I don't think it's accidental that each one of the baptizer's question, answers has to do with material possessions. Two tunics, share. Food, share. Don't take money from people and be content with your wages. Selfless generosity, an eagerness to spend oneself on the betterment of another person is the mark of a truly repentant man and woman. Because this is the mark of the Savior. After all, Jesus left the riches of heaven, poured out his life to save those who had bankrupted their own lives through their sin and folly. And having been united to him in faith, we have received riches untold. We've become inheritors of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Knowing the riches that we have in Christ knowing that God is our provider, we give ourselves and our resources to help others. And we do so cheerfully. And so those of us with two tunics share one of them with those who have none. We deal honestly. We deal fairly with one another. Since our contentment is in Christ, and we have him, we can be content with what we have in this life. Since our life is hidden with Christ in God, we are free to spend ourselves on the improvement of others. What then shall we do? Love God. Love neighbor. Delight in the Lord. You have heard the word of God today. Turn to the Lord and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you <clears throat> as your people that we have become lax in our commitments to purity and to holiness. We've not traced our happiness in Jesus. We sought it from the things of this world. And Lord, we admit that we've become comfortable in not progressing and growing in Christ-likeness.
Will you forgive us? Will you do as Pastor Brent prayed last week? Renew in us the joy of our salvation. Will you level the mountains of pride in our heart? Will you fill the valleys of folly in our lives? And will you straighten out the crooked affections of our heart? Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Form us, shape us into the image of your Son until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to your feet and receive the assurance of pardon today from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, where we read, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit.